Thank you. I, I'm feeling the pressure to come up with an act, and I have been thinking about it. I'm not sure yet. I'm, I'm not sure about that, but I am working on that. Tonight is the last time that we're going to have the evening teaching, so this will be my last night to be able to be with all of you in this kind of way. And I did really want to start by saying thank you. I have had a wonderful, wonderful few days. And I want to thank the people that have come up to me and we've had some really sacred conversations. And I knew this coming in, I, I know this is just true with all people, but the amount of pain that many of us carry, even as we're caring for others, is incredible to me. And I know that's true for a lot of you, ones that I have not spoken with, but the ones that I have talked with, I just wanted to say thank you for sharing that with me and for uh, the privilege of being able to be in that with you. And I'm so grateful to Ian for the really creative, stimulating, wonderful, I look forward to hearing, I think I still get to hear four more, five more, three more. Okay, I'm really, really looking forward to that. That's been wonderful. And it was, I just want to say thank you to even the times of question and the people that have come up afterwards. You've given me such incredible things to talk about. Like even Mark last night was telling me about his PhD that he did on, if I'm going to say this right, the transforming moment in the preaching event or something like that. And he brought up the difference that came out in his research as he was looking at what helped preaching help people have... Um, transformational moments during listening to preaching and the difference between a preacher's authenticity and vulnerability. And the most impact was when a preacher had high authenticity and moderate vulnerability, which I thought was a great way of putting what we were trying to talk about last night. I think sometimes when I use the word vulnerability, the word authenticity might actually be a, a more accurate word. That idea of being fully who you are not having so much a private self and a public self, but that doesn't mean that you would tell private details about what you're going through when you're in the pulpit. I mean, the really private details of our life are for a very intimate inner circle. But being authentic where I'm not afraid to talk about, I'm sad, or this is difficult for me, it maybe wouldn't tell the details, but that I would model as a leader being an authentic person with authentic human emotions. So that was so helpful to me. And then other things too, people, you know, just thinking about the question about millennials makes me, I wrote a lot about that, uh, want to do some more research on that. So it's been very stimulating for me to have all of your input on this. And, and I want to say too that it I want to thank you that my call to Fuller in my role as Dean of Chapel and Spiritual Life has really been reinvigorated being here. Because hearing many of you talk about what you didn't get in seminary, what you would have liked to have had in seminary, and, and to, you know, truth be told, hearing about the impact of people that are in ministry that are not mentally healthy and the damage they end up doing to you, associates, and other people, their colleagues, and to other people that are in that church. I've heard many stories, as you all know. It's so sad how prevalent it is that people do great damage out of their woundedness. And so I feel even more excited and invigorated about how to help right when people come into seminary to be able to look at some of the, help them look at their issues and all the different kinds of ways that we can just even give them more of a map of what mental health looks like before they go out into the incredibly stressful work of, of ministry. I'm sure many of you have read Eugene Peterson's book, Working the Angles. The part that stands out to me is when he says that the ministry is the only profession that actually encourages a lack of authenticity. The ministry encourages the sense of being on a pedestal or looking a certain way that many people don't want an authentic pastor. 
And so how much though we need to know in leadership not to give people always what they want, but give people what we really sense from God is going to bring greater health and maturity and healing. But it's very difficult. The last thing I just wanted to say before I get into my presentation tonight, as I was praying for this conference before, and very much since I've been here, I had a brief conversation with Troy about this earlier yesterday, I really have a sense that this conference could be a healing agent in the Presbyterian Church, in the different branches of what's happened. I know that there's been some people that have been here before and aren't here, and that many of you may be missing people, that there's some loss, there's some pain around all that. But I just think there's so much tradition, there's so much life, there's so much vitality, there's so much joy here, that what would it be like if even some of you that recognize a person who is not here, if you just called them and said, we missed you, and how are you? And I'd love for you to come next year. And if this could be a place where some of the divisions that have happened in our denomination could actually be healed during this week, eight days after Easter. I just had that. I'm, I'm going to pray for that, for this conference as well, because I think there's a real potential. We, we tried to do that last year. We had one meeting at Fuller, and we had some leaders from um, EPC, PCA, ECO, PCUSA, all in the room together talking about how we can be brothers and sisters in Christ in the midst of our theological differences. And I just think we need so much more of that. And I, I just got excited about that for you. So that would be my, I guess, my challenge or my encouragement is that you th call somebody that isn't here and just let them know you're thinking about them and you miss them. Okay, I want to start today with a poem. And Mike is going to help me. I, I, Mike, my husband, said... You're doing PowerPoint? Like, were you feeling competitive with Ian? <laughs> and I said, no. No, I wanted to read this poem, and I wanted you to have the lyrics, and I thought this would be the best way to do this. Many of you probably know this poem. This is, there was a series of poems that George Herbert did on love, and I don't know if you know that this was actually written when he was a pastor. He was a poet-pastor. And um, for those of you that aren't familiar, this poem is actually a dialogue between love, who is God, and the guest. And so as you, I'll try to, to read it in a way to help you feel that, but um, I really love this a lot. Okay. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, the ungrateful? Ah, oh, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. And so I did sit and eat. If we were a smaller group, I would love so much to just hear what stands out to you about that poem. What do you feel? What do you resonate with? What lingers with you? 
for me, what strikes me the most is in a way, the first thing is what Ian even said this morning about God's incredible pursuit of us. I love how in that first, the first part where it says that um, quick-eyed love observing me grow slack drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. That What a beautiful expression of God's grace. That here we are, we are, the guest is representing us, and when we come into the presence of God, when we're in God's glory, there's often something in us that draws back. And it's love that comes and gently and sweetly pursues and asks of, like, like a beautiful host, is there anything I can get you? Is there, is there anything that you lack? But the other thing that really hits me is this idea of how we push away what it is we want the most. We do that. I mean, it's an extension of the Romans 7 dilemma that we all live in, that we draw back from love. And one thing I think about this is it's a great example of how in lots of different ways, the difference between living in our head and living with the reality embodied of really knowing faith, knowing God in a deeper, guttural kind of way. Because I would imagine that everyone in here, we believe that God is love. We believe that. We might even say we know that. We believe that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We believe that. We believe that our only hope is the grace and the forgiveness and relationship with Jesus Christ. And yet we want to earn it. How we actually end up living, like in this poem, I don't deserve this, which when you say I don't deserve this, what are you saying? That if I maybe worked harder, I would, I could? You know, in the poem where it says, a guest more worthy should be here. Again, assuming that there's someone else who does it better than I do. All of us are so deeply and profoundly aware of our own inadequacy and our own failure. And what that does, even though we know in our head that that's exactly what we need to just bring to God and say, here I am just as I am without one plea, that really isn't how most of us live. Most of us draw back. Most of us wait and expect that someone more worthy than we are is going to have that relationship with God or have that something. The phrase we might say at times that we feel somewhere deep down, I am not enough. My friend Kurt Thompson has written an incredible book called The Soul of Shame. His first book, The Anatomy of the Soul, was a book that he wrote out of his experience as a Christian psychiatrist. He lives on the East Coast, he lives in Virginia, and he just began, he's a, he's a committed Christian person, and he's began teaching, he, he's what he would call an interpersonal neurobiologist. He began studying with a couple of psychiatrists actually from UCLA, Alan Shore and Dan Siegel, that have done a lot of work on what's this kind of this idea of the brain's plasticity and what they call interpersonal neurobiology that looks at the way that our brain is actually shaped by behaviors that we engage in and by the quality of relationships. Like even right now, this is one thing that Kurt says provocatively when he begins a talk, there is no such thing as an individual brain. 
that from the very time that a brain is in utero, a brain is being shaped by another brain. And our brains are constantly in interaction with other brains, and it's shaping. Like, for instance, right now, if I look out at you, and I see many of you falling asleep, or looking at your cell phones, or talking to each other, that is literally going to change my brain. That there's a way that my anxiety will intensify, some part of me will shut down, I will become more anxious, I will become less free, my prefrontal cortex will not get as much blood, I won't be as loose and active and reflective, my amygdala and my limbic system, the part of me that's fight or flight, gets more activated because I'm feeling shut down, I'm feeling shame, I'm feeling I am not enough. And my brain will not work as well when I feel like that. Kurt talks about the nine different domains of the brain, and a healthy brain is where all these different domains are in relationship with each other. Just like us, the brain is meant to be in relationship, all the different aspects of the brain. And what shame does, just like shame will separate me from God, love, it, we drew back from love, and shame separates me from you. If I feel shame about my divorce, I could never talk about it. I would pull back from that. But it literally even happens at a cellular, a physiological level, my brain also gets kind of disconnected, disintegrated. When I was talking about this once, it was actually in a sermon um, last month in Florida. I was at a church, and the pastor came up to me later and said, Laura, I have to tell you that when you talked about what shame does to our brain and when we are experiencing shame, we're not using our prefrontal cortex, which is where we reflect on experiences and we make our wisest choices. He said, I can't tell you the freedom I felt because I had a period of time in my life when I made some really, really bad decisions. And as I look back on it now, I was operating so incredibly out of shame. And when we're operating out of shame, we do not make good decisions. We want to avoid, we want to get away. You think of what can even push people to decisions about all kinds of ways that they act out their pain. And what's underneath that is often shame. We're not thinking rightly. Kurt says that shame is the affective, the emotional component of sin. It's a really, it's a fascinating book. He even believes that original sin in the garden, when Satan whispers the lies to Adam and Eve, what he's really whispering to them is the way God made you is not enough. You're not enough. The only way you'll be enough is if you are like God. You are not enough. And so at the very core of original sin is this experience of shame. I'm going to show you a diagram, and I have to give credit to Todd Pickett. He is an English professor, and I mean, in the diagram is nothing to speak of, but these thoughts that are related to the diagram are really Todd, what I, Todd Pickett, I've learned from him and borrowing from him, um, as kind of looking at this and looking at the role of shame in formation. Um, did I say Todd's the dean of spiritual life at Biola? He's an English professor and the dean of spiritual life, a wonderful man. You know, Biola Talbot, even though their theology is different than Fuller's for sure, they are doing some wonderful things with spiritual formation. They have an institute of spiritual formation at Talbot that is producing a lot of wonderfully thoughtful um, 
spiritual directors and people that are, I'm learning a lot from about spiritual formation. But what Todd says is that um, this is a diagram that reflects how every single person at some level experiences themselves. That we have our ideals. And even people that aren't Christians, we have cultural and personal shoulds. You grew up with some in your family. For, for instance, in my family, there was an absolute should of going to college. That was not even questioned. There were shoulds about honesty. You know, there may be things that you experienced in your family, shoulds about things that you were going to do with your life. Ways that a family should be. So there are shoulds that are in our ideal life. How we should be, how family should be. It's probably, it is also, um, we can put up there how our church should be. Then as a Christian, you can add to that all kinds of Christian commands and prescriptions of how we are to live. You could even put up there, like we, last night, that wonderful question, being conformed into the image of Christ. A lot of people actually think, I'm supposed to be like Jesus Christ or Mother Teresa. I'm supposed to always be giving. I'm supposed to have an hour of prayer every day. I'm supposed to give an enormous amount of my money away all the time. I'm supposed to be involved in missions. I'm, I mean, what I'd love you to think of right now, if you can, is think of what that would be in that box for you. What are those shoulds that you've grown up thinking that you should be? If you're a good person, if you're a successful person, if you're a significant person. And then that bottom line, you could say real self, or even, it's interesting, the words, I am. What am I really? Like for me, I was revealing the first night, I think it was, I am someone who struggles with doubt. And so there are times that I have questions about faith or questions about scripture. But I think many people wouldn't think that a dean of chapel and spiritual formation at a seminary should probably have. In my real self, I've been divorced. My ideal self, which I was so strongly committed to, was to never, ever get a divorce. I have all kinds of ideals about how I wish I had been as a mother. And my real self did not live up to what I would have wanted to be. It was so interesting. The first time when my oldest was going to college, he was going to UCLA. And then we were in the car driving in the LA freeways. And I remember it was a Sunday morning. And we'd actually gone to the early morning communion service at First Press Hollywood. They have an 8.30 kind of quiet communion service. And I had asked, it was my son and my daughter and myself. And we all went to the communion service together, which was, of course, way more meaningful to me than anyone else. And we're on the car going from Hollywood Press to UCLA, which is not a super far drive except if there's traffic. And it was a Sunday. There wasn't too much traffic. But I just started in the car. It was like I just lost control. I was obsessively going over all the things that I wished I had done differently when he was growing up. You know, oh, I wish I had done this, and why did I do that, and I wish I had done this. And I could just feel like this wave of anxiety. I was about to bring my firstborn, drop him off at college, and like I'd lost, the window had closed. And I couldn't do any more than what I had done. And I remember my son, who was rather used to putting up with me, having these emotional outbursts at times, said, Mom, we have a really good relationship. I'm really okay. It's going to be fine. But it was that experience I had 
of right in that moment, the gap between my real self and my ideal self was so painful to me. I was feeling exquisitely how I had not lived up to my own ideals as a mom. And I felt like I was, I was, some door was closing and I had to deal with the reality that what I had done was enough. That in many ways I've been a really good mom, some other ways not so much, but he was going to college. But what we do when we experience failure or disappointment, when we're not the self we want to be, I believe that this is exactly where spiritual formation happens. What do we do with that gap between who we experience ourselves to really be and who we long to be when our failure is revealed? And I think it's right in there, and I know I did it too right then. We are so prone to compare ourselves to someone else and imagine how someone else would have done it better or different. And in our poem, when love says, what do you want? And he says, a guest who's worthy for all this. Like right in that moment of feeling shame, the first thing that comes, someone else should be here, not me. So we begin to compare ourselves in that moment um, when we're feeling that pain. We're left with this kind of achy sense of what we're not. And so what we go into often, it's not just men that go into this, men and women go in often to a fix-it mode. Because feelings of shame are so uncomfortable. One thing that Kurt Thompson says is that we know the feeling of shame in our body, even though we couldn't put words on it. I'm sure we could all just kind of almost right now feel what that feels like when you're just very aware of not being enough. And it's beyond a beyond words kind of knowing. And so different ways each of us, and that's another thing Kurt Thompson says, no one escapes shame. Nobody. Nobody escapes the gap between who we experience ourselves to be and who we long to be. So here are some of the different ways that people engage in this fix-it project. We all uh, try to do different things to fix this gap. The first thing is there are some people that pretend. And they just pretend they don't feel shame and they don't want to even look at it or admit it. Oh, I'm fine, no problem. Another thing that pretenders do sometimes is they pretend that things don't even hurt. They, they don't let themselves go to these deeper emotional levels. That was one thing my dad did. One time, this will show you, this is just bizarre. You know, here's a person who's a medical physician, a very wise person in so many ways. I hadn't seen him in about a year, and he picked me up at the airport. This was back in the days when you could come right to the gate when someone got off a plane before 9-11. And I got off the plane and I remember running to my dad and throwing my arms around him and I made him really uncomfortable by expressing a lot of emotion, crying, hugging, you know, I think, you know, I jumped on him. And he kind of, Laura, Laura, you don't think I care about you any more than anyone else in this airport, do you? I know. And I, it's so bizarre, my dad adored me but in that moment, there was this pretending that he didn't have those, he, that he wasn't feeling as vulnerable as I was. He was feeling, I'm sure he was feeling, I was a parent, I know, not if I can imagine not seeing my child for a year, the vulnerability I'd feel of like, you're safe, you're in my arms, I get to be with you, I've missed you, I love you, where have you been? My dad could not go there. So he pretended that he was having this bizarre psychotic experience that, I was just like any old stranger in the airport to him. 
But the length that people will go sometimes to pretend they're not vulnerable can be bizarre. Another one that I would imagine that some of you in this room know something about is sometimes the self-project becomes intellectualism. We're just going to read a lot of books. We're going to get really smart. We're going to figure this out. We're going to be able to be smart enough. We're going to read business books. We're going to read psychology books. We're going to read theology books. We're going to read books about everything. So we're going to be ready to handle everything. Nothing is going to throw us off because we've read it. We've taken a class. We've got multiple degrees. We do online podcasts now. We read the newspaper every day. We're going to be so smart that we won't, we won't really feel that gap. And in a way, a part of intellectualism is also a kind of a denial that I won't have that feeling of deficiency. I'll be smart enough to avoid that. Another one, some people, and there's even some denominations that would foster this more, is there can be a pursuit of spiritual and emotional experiences to measure spirituality. That when I begin to feel that gap, if I have enough spiritual highs, almost like the way kids used to do of going to a camp, I pursue these spiritual and emotional highs that keep me from feeling that inadequacy or that pain or that emptiness or that loneliness. Kind of similar to that, another over-spiritualizing. Some people want to avoid the self. I get, I get asked this a lot as a psychologist. Laura, aren't we supposed to deny the self? Why are you talking so much about the self? Why do we have to be self-aware? Aren't we supposed to deny ourselves? Isn't it all about God? It's not about me. It's all about God. It doesn't matter. You know, I've had, I can't tell you how many people I have had over the 26 years sitting in my office saying, you know, okay, yeah, I was abused as a child, and okay, yeah, that's right, I did have, um, you know, both my kidneys I have transplanted, and um, yeah, that's right, I have, I have this other major illness, and okay, yeah, I'm not working right now, but you know, it doesn't matter. None of that matters, because it's all about God. And so in that way, God gets used as a way to avoid experiencing or my life may not be what I wanted it to be. My own experience of myself may not be what I wanted it to be. But if I'm a Christian, I'm not supposed to think about myself. What I've said to people often when they've asked me this question, I absolutely believe that in discipleship, in following Christ, we lay down our lives. We deny ourself. But we have to have a self to have it mean anything to lay it down. If I don't have a real deep understanding of who I am, what am I sacrificing? then I'm not sacrificing. It's a defense. It's an avoidance. It's not wanting to even deal with that gap, that messiness of what it means to be a human being created in the image of God with these ideals for the kingdom of God, but living in the messiness of this real world. We're so often, like the title of this great book by Cornelius Plantinga, Not the Way Things Are Supposed to Be. I love that book. Have many of you read that book? That is such a great book. That's the truth. And so how do we live in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be? And then again, some people, two more uh, very often ways that people try to fix it. There's moral formation, and that might be what Ian called kind of his refrigerator magnet way, um, where I'm going to just be, I'm going to try hard to be really good. And I've got these checklists, and I've got, I, if I do X, Y, and Z, 
I'm going to be really good. I remember one of my friends, um, I became very close to, I had a really good friend at Wheaton, I became very close to her family. And this friend, when she left Wheaton, she left the faith and she came out as a lesbian. And she has been living in New York City and working there as a filmmaker with her partner for the past over 20 years. And her mom, very conservative Christian family in uh, Pennsylvania, I remember her mom calling me on the phone in those years when this was first being revealed. And she literally would say, Laura, I did everything right. I raised her in the way I was supposed to raise her. And scripture tells me how she's supposed to turn out. What happened? I did everything right. So that idea that if I'm good enough, I won't feel that pain or that gap or nothing will happen. And then finally, I think that what many people do, and this would be the one that I think I've used a lot, is trying to use other strengths to cover and hide areas of shame. If I can just focus on these things that I do well, I won't have to really even talk about or deal with these other things that are difficult. So what do we do when our self-projects don't work because they never do? So what happens when the pretending doesn't work, when the trying harder doesn't work, and we keep coming up with an experience of this gap of how we long to live and what really happens, how we're really living? Well, one of the things that happens big time in there is addiction. I believe that's a lot of where addiction takes root, is it's kind of a routine way that we check out and we numb ourselves. Rather than come home at the end of a day and experience the feelings of what that day was like, what my life is like, what my life isn't like, what I'm missing, what I'm hungry for, what I'm longing for, what is or isn't happening in my most intimate relationships. We can pour a glass of wine or we can start eating a bag of Doritos. We can turn on Sports Center or Jeopardy or go on the internet, or play Candy Crush, or Solitaire, and check out. Because we don't want to be in our life. Our life is that. That is our life. We all have to figure out what to do at the end of a day with what we long for and what we're living. And an enormous part of addictions, I think, take root right there. I think some people end up, then again, also living, kind of separating their public and their private life. Some of the saddest experiences that I've seen are when people actually begin self-loathing. They begin hating themselves. They compare themselves to others, they feel inadequate, and there literally is a kind of self-loathing that begins to take root, or despair about who I'm not, what I'm not. And people hide this. And can you imagine the heart of God who created us with incredible, incredible love Every single one of us wants us to thrive and flourish and know how cherished and beloved we are. And there are many people that live with this cloud of self-loathing and despair because they're not who they think they should be or who parents maybe told them they should be or who they feel their church is telling them they should be. My church doesn't look like that. I don't drive a car or live in a home or go on vacations. I don't read books as much as I should. I don't work out. I don't floss. (laughs) 
What Kurt Thompson says is that the only antidote to this cycle, because you can only imagine, if I begin to live with those kinds of feelings, what do I end up doing then? I detach even more. And that's the cycle where addiction really begins to take hold. You know, I'm, right now, um, the, my student spiritual formation team, we're a part of a project with some people from the School of Psychology at Fuller that are testing an online program for missionaries to help them deal with uh, pornography addictions. Because, as you may imagine, that's a really, really big problem for a lot of people on the mission field. They're very, very isolated. They're very lonely. They don't want to drink, or they sometimes may not have chunky monkey ice cream at their fingertips, but they have a laptop. And it is really, really easy to get pornography. And so it's a way that they can check out, they can feel connected, they experience it as some sort of filling or joy or intensity, but it's so shameful. That gap between who they want to be and who they really are is growing bigger and bigger all the time. Well, what Kurt Thompson says in his book, Soul, the, the, the Soul of Shame, is that the only antidote for this, the only antidote, it's the opposite of detachment. It's instead of drawing back when we feel these things, it's literally leaning in, leaning in with vulnerability. The only antidote is when I do end up saying to you, like I've done this weekend, I've told you about some things in my life that are so not ideal, and I have not received rejection from you. I have not received people. No one's thrown anything at me. No one's asked me to go home. Actually, the opposite. I've had people that have said thank you. I've had people come close to me. I've had people then share vulnerable parts of their life with me. And I felt connected, and I have felt valued. I felt like God's used me these days. And we all know what that feels like, to feel that God is at work through you to bless people. That's what happens. That's what heals shame when we are able to say, instead of, I can't talk about it, no one will understand, no one will accept me, I, I, can't, I can't even deal with that gap between my ideal and real self. How am I going to trust that with someone else? But that just increases the separation more and more and more. So the only antidote to that is to lean in and, re and realize that, because this is another thing he says that's so interesting, is the whole experience of shame is accompanied right next to it with a fear of abandonment. That's what shame, shame is so attached to a fear of abandonment. That's really the core of what's so terrifying about it. It's, I actually think that we would be okay with our imperfect selves if we didn't think that other people would abandon us for it. Whether that's even God, or our, our people in our congregation, or our closest friends, or our spouse, we're so afraid that we will be abandoned. I want to read, let's see if I can pull it up on here. I want to read Ephesians 3. 16 through 19, this incredible prayer. And this is, again, one thing that Todd Pickett says, is that in that way that we know shame in our bodies beyond words, what if we knew love in our body beyond words? What if we knew this in our bodies? That according to the riches of his glory, I pray he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I, I really believe that we, most of, the con- most of the time, come to understand love like that by other people. That the height and the breadth and the depth of the love of God is not something I experience usually in abstract in my bedroom. But it's what I experience when someone weeps with me. It's what I experience when I have the incredible courage to somehow say something to someone and they put their arms around me or they end up sharing with me a burden as well so we now have carried each other's burdens and there's bonds that have now that are, that are holding us together rather than me alone with my shame, feeling detached and despairing and disintegrating. I want to finish with this idea that spiritual formation is like a compost pile. Um, this is Northern California, and I know a lot of people compost up here. In Southern California, not so much. We're into liposuction. But up here, it is composting. And what's interesting about composting is that instead of taking garbage that most of us would normally want to put in a black bag and put a seal on top so nobody actually ever sees what's inside the bag. And you want to put it on your curb and let somebody take it away. That's what we love to do. Don't you have actually a good feeling when your garbage cans are empty? I love that feeling. Fresh bag smells like Febreze. It's a happy feeling. We want to have our garbage gone. And what compost piles do instead in this really, I think, this beautiful spiritual analogy, is you take what others would want to throw away, you take what smells, you take what could be considered garbage, and you actually tend to it. You actually nurture it. You welcome it at first as a part of what is something that's going to become good. If any of you have done that, there's, there's lot, it's not a quick process. There's lots of different aspects to it. It requires air. It requires moisture. It requires biodegraders. But all of these things take this stinky watermelon rind and coffee grounds and eggshells and orange peels, and you do this, and it literally is like magic. And what ends up coming as you pay attention to your garbage and you nurture it, it becomes beautiful black soil. Incredibly rich, fertile, beautiful soil that amazing things will grow out of. And I believe that that is exactly what God wants us to do with that gap. The gap between our real and our ideal self is not something for us to try to not see or to feel so afraid of admitting. It's like right there, is the place where God's hands and the hands of people that love me are going to come in and say, I love you even with all that crap. 
that doesn't make you not lovable. God's working on you. So you're not perfect. Neither am I. Like, that's what it is to be a human being. Let's pray about that. Or let me just listen to another story of how you yelled at your kids this morning. I know I yelled at mine. And so there's this way that a community of grace is formed. A community where what we are doing that's not perfect and not ideal is not something we hide from one another or we pretend we don't have, but we feel that sense of being able to be this whole person who's loved. And isn't that how we all want to be loved? We, we, all, we don't want to just be loved for our accomplishments. The times when I feel most loved is when I'm acting really immature and selfish and horrible. And Mike will say, you're having a really bad day, aren't you? What's wrong? What's wrong, honey? This isn't how you normally act. What's going on? And so I'm treated with grace and love instead of, I'm going on a bike ride. So that idea of composting our own garbage, what, what is it that you need to put in a little jar on your countertop, instead of putting your garbage in some black bag and putting it on the curb, what do you need to be tending or nurturing in your life that is going to help over time and grace and love turn into the soil that God wants to plant and grow something beautiful in? I'm going to stop there, but what I wanted to do before we end, first I want to pray for you and for all of us for that. And then what I wanted to do is I did bring some resources that I'd like to talk about, about spiritual formation, because I've had some people ask, and so I just put a few things together that I think might be helpful. But before we do that, let's pray together. And I'd like to invite you just to put your hands out as we want to receive from God the incredible grace and courage to live like this. Loving God, it's so hard for us often to accept that we're human beings. It's so hard for us to see ourselves in reality and know that you call us good, that you love us, that you know that we are but dust, that you will never give up your project. Help us to abandon our fix-it projects and really allow your Holy Spirit to guide us into truth. And that we can accept the work, the redemptive, healing, grace-filled work that you have been doing from the time we were just a group of cells in our mother's womb. You have knitted us together. You continue to knit us together as we come apart. You continue, God, to want to breathe peace into our lungs. You continue to want to shower us with your blessings. You continue to want to encourage us to keep turning towards you, just confessing our sin and asking for your help and receiving your embrace. God, will you help each one of us where we get stuck, trying to prove our goodness, how smart we are, how successful we are, how whatever we are. Will you help us to abandon that, Lord, and be able to just say, Lord, thank you for loving me. And help me. Help me.
So thank you, God, for your tender mercies, your constant presence. And mostly we thank you, God, for giving us each other in this process, that we can hold each other, that we can listen deeply to one another, that we can laugh together, and we can do this, we can do this together. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let me um, now, look at, this is a, I did this slide myself. <laughs> Resources. I've, I've never done PowerPoint. Clinical psychologists, it would be really weird if your client came in and you started a PowerPoint. So I didn't ever learn that. Okay, here are some books. And these are just three books. There's so many, but these are just three that, for some of you that maybe are just beginning this journey of wanting to learn about spiritual formation, Ruth Haley Barton is probably one of the people right now who's doing more work in this area than a lot of other people. And this book, she's written many great books. Uh, Sacred Rhythms is a really good book of hers. But this one, Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership, for those of you who are interested in learning more about this idea of we have to start with ourselves, that the spiritual formation of my own life is where I need to begin as a leader. Um, probably lots of you know about Pete Scazzaro's book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. He talks about his own story as a pastor in New York and hitting burnout and what he did when kind of the whole thing unraveled and decided that there was a healthier way to follow Christ and to be a pastor and to do church. And then Ronald Rollheiser, he's a Catholic priest. This is a little bit of a different angle, but this is a wonderful book about the longing that we have uh, for God's presence. And um, my husband, Mike, Mike, will you raise your hand? If anybody wants to talk more about all this, Mike just finished a year-long spiritual formation program where he went from being a person that had really no contact with this kind of literature and this kind of way of being a pastor to having gone through this program and now realizing that he can't go back into the pastorate the same way anymore and is really working on some new ways of bringing contemplative practices and this kind of focus into his work as a Presbyterian minister. This online spiritual formation, this is probably one of the greatest gifts. If you don't know about this, um, this is a wonderful website that is a Jesuit group in the UK put out this, um, I guess it would be called a daily devotional kind of a thing, but it's not like a regular devotional. It's a wonderful um, something that would be different for many of you to, who need maybe some new life breathed into your experience of being with God every morning. It's really meant for people that commute. You can download, they do it uh, six days a week, and you can download it onto your MP3. It takes about 11 or 12 minutes usually every day, and it starts out with some kind of chiming of bells, and then there's a beautiful piece of music for somewhere in the world. It could be um, monks in France. It could be Peruvian flutes. It could be a guitar from Ireland. Some kind of world music, a little piece of music. And then there's a beautiful, it's, they go through the lectionary. It's a passage of scripture from the lectionary from that week. And then silence and some small kind of very, very thoughtful reflection questions. So it's kind of like a, a Lectio Divina and they read the passage again. But Mike and I often sit in these two chairs in our backyard and listen to this together as we start our day. It's a really beautiful, beautiful tool. I think part of what in spiritual formation is letting devotional time be almost more like a gift you receive than something you do. And this can help with that a lot. It's, it's a gift. Okay. 
The next one, here are some programs. If any of you are interested in doing more than just reading a book, um, and I didn't want to put Fuller's at the top. Well, I did want to put Fuller's at the top, but I thought that would be kind of hoggy, so I put mine at the bottom. But there's many good programs. But Ruth Haley Barton's, again, um, her transforming, is it, I think it's called Transforming Leadership. It's a, um, I think hers is a two-year program. Right now, it's only in Chicago, so you you would have to fly to Chicago. But it's, uh, I think it's um, quarterly retreats and then other kinds of readings. Um, the Dallas Willard Center for Christian Spirituality at Westmont, um, they have a wonderful website right now. They have on there a series of videos of John Ortberg in the Holy Land. But they have all kinds of wonderful resources on that website for spiritual formation. Uh, my friend Gary Moon, who I went to psych school with at Fuller, is the director of the Dallas Willard, um, that center. And actually, Gary Moon started this fall a new D-Men at Fuller on spiritual direction. It's the first time they've had that. And I will actually be teaching a doctor of ministry, a new cohort will be beginning in the year 2017 uh, for a D-Men in spiritual direction as well. I'm going to be teaching with a professor from Wheaton named Tom Schwanda. So we're very excited about that. Um, I just found out about this. The Vineyard is actually starting a monastery in eastern Ohio. And they have a very interesting website where they're talking about why they're doing this. And they're going to be trying to create an actual monastery there. But then there would be ways that what they're learning about prayer, they want to distribute that learning to churches all over the country, the world maybe. But uh, just interesting if you're uh, kind of to see what the vineyard's doing with that. And then this is a fabulous one. For any of you that live in this area, I would highlight this one. Soul Care and Wellspring. This was started, I had lunch on Monday with the two women that are in charge of this. One of them was on staff at Menlo Park Press for many, many years. The other one went to Harvard Business School. Really incredibly gifted women that started this about 20 years ago because they felt very aware at, at this at, at, during Menlo's history at that time, there were a number of things that happened with pastors, um, situations where pastors had to leave in you know, painful situations. And so out of all that sense of why are pastors' lives exploding, they started this. At first was women at the well. was first for women, and then they um, made it for men and women. This program is free. They, they have a donor who actually pays for anyone who's in this course. It's a nine-month course where they have retreats and um, wonderful uh, nourishing enrichment for pastors. That's really their vision, is to nourish pastors. So I'd highly recommend, if you're depleted and you need to be nourished and you want to learn more about this, email them tomorrow, tonight. And then uh, Fuller Seminary, which I'm very proud about this. And I was supposed to, I, I was supposed to get a package in the mail today, and for some reason it didn't come. So it will come tomorrow. So I'm going to bring, uh, bring some brochures about that to lunch tomorrow, maybe? Would that be good? Or... Whatever you guys tell me, I'd love to be able to show you. We've just started these new things called Fuller Formation Groups for both Fuller alumni but other pastors as well where we're taking what we're learning about spiritual formation at Fuller and we've put it into a retreat series that takes place over about 14 months. And we break down what, what the, the four classes at Fuller of mission, community, worship, and prayer, and one called Touchstone. We take what we've really worked in these classes and we make it appropriate for pastors and alums. So you can go on the website and learn more about the Fuller Formation Groups. We just had our very first one in February at the Sarah Retreat Center in Malibu in Southern California. It was really, it was amazing. 
So that's something that Fuller's doing. So all of these would be ways that you would be doing something for your own spiritual nurture that might be a real, real gift to you. But wasn't this a pretty good slide I did? I thought I, this was, yeah. And then um, two conferences. Uh, they're both, one's coming up this September, the Renovari Conference. That's, you know, a lot of the work of Dallas Willard and Richard Foster. And then the Apprentice Gathering. I went to this last year. It was fabulous. It was in, in Wichita, Kansas. The guy, James Bryant Smith, who did Good and Beautiful, he, he's, he teaches at Friends University in Wichita, and he kind of is the one who puts this on. Excellent speakers, um, really, really great. Those are two wonderful spiritual formation conferences that you can go to. And then if anyone else wants this too, if you didn't get this, um, you can email me because here's my email. So if you're interested in becoming a mentor, you know how I said you can come up to my computer? I forgot that you could actually just email me. I forgot about that part. So you don't have to actually come to my computer. You can just from your own personal device or you can email me. Let me know you'd like to be a mentor. I have to send you an application because um, what I, up to this point, I have actually interviewed every single person. It's really important to me who we choose as mentors. And so you fill out an application and then I will be calling you or Skyping with you, probably Skyping with you. And we would have some conversation about that. Um, and then also, any of you that have spiritual formation stories about your time at Fuller, or not even at Fuller, I, I'm collecting, I, I'm particularly interested in the ones that happened while people were at Fuller, but I would love any stories that you have about spiritual formation experiences, positive or negative, because I'm just really interested in what people that are pastors have what happened in seminary? Um, did you have that with a professor, a certain an experience of spiritual formation, um, some other type of class or retreat program? I, I would love, if any of you feel like telling me a spiritual formation story, <clears throat> or just if you want to have any more conversation with me about spiritual formation, feel free to email me, and I'd love to be in conversation with you. So I think that's my last slide. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much.